Hello, my name is Timothy Paul Jones, and I teach apologetics and write about apologetics. And I'm Garrick Bailey, and I've made far too many apologies than I care to admit. Well, there are a lot of concerns that compete for our attention as Christians. There's evangelism, there's discipleship, there's the centrality of the gospel, there's our concern for how the gospel intersects with culture. And in the midst of all these concerns, why should we prioritize apologetics? That's what we'll be talking about in the three chords segment of this week's podcast. Then in the second half, we'll be taking a look at the birth of rock and roll and at the 1967 hit Age of Aquarius by Fifth Dimension. You won't want to miss this episode of Three Chords and the Truth. Welcome to Three Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. I'm Timothy Paul Jones. Each week, my co-host, Garrick Bailey, and I tackle an issue related to one of three topics, the reliability of the Gospels, racial reconciliation, or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then, we go looking for God's truth by reviewing a classic rock song. Thank you for joining us today on Three Chords and the Truth, where we defend the faith, do justice, and dig for truth in rock and roll. The question we're exploring this week is what apologetics is, why it matters. Timothy, what is apologetics? Well, when we hear the word apologetics, we often think of apologizing because that's the nearest analogy we often have in terms of language to it. And of course, they do come from the same root, but apologetics comes from, has a completely different meaning. They both come from the Greek word apologia. And really, when we say apologizes and saying, I'm sorry, we are really misusing that root word uh, in that. But we shouldn't blame ourselves too much for it. REM made that mistake in their song, The Apologist, which is all about saying, I'm sorry. But when we say apologetics, we're not talking about saying, I'm sorry at all. We're talking about it more in the true sense of that Greek word, apologia, which has to do with a defense. And that's what it meant. It was a speech in defense or a defense. And so we're talking about a defense. But in our case, as Christians, we are talking primarily about a defense of the truth of God. And so it's kind of interesting. Uh, Aristotle actually used the word apologia, this, this term apologia, and when he used it, he set it up as the opposite of kategoria. So according to Aristotle, there's a sense of which in a court of law, there's a kategoria, which is an accusation, and then there's a defense, which is an apologia. And so that's kind of how we get this term. It's a defense against accusations. It's really important as Christians because it assumes something that we often forget, which is that we are going to be on the defensive. Sometimes you're like, why, am, why are people saying these negative things about Christian faith? Why are people attacking? the Bible. Well, it's to be expected. That's what the very word apologetics recognizes, is that we are going to be on the defensive. And so it's the way we defend the truth of God. Now, here's how I actually define the, the term apologetics for my students. So apologetics is the reverent, reasonable, and humble defense through our words and through our lives of the hope we have in the risen Christ as this hope has been revealed in his word and in his world. So that's my definition that I always give my students. It's reverent, reasonable, and humble. It's a defense of the hope we have in the risen Christ as this hope has been revealed in God's word and in God's world. That's kind of the definition of apologetics that I give. And it's essentially a defense that was predicted by the writers of at least the New Testament and Jesus himself, who told us to expect this. 
Exactly. I mean, so you got in First Peter, for example, you got this really clear, which I, I almost I hate to refer to First Peter chapter three because that almost is like a bumper sticker for apologetics. If we need something to fill that space on the poster for our apologetics conference, let's put First Peter three about to be have a have a, a defense for the hope that is in you. But yet, that's a really a rich, deep, beautiful text as well. And if we think about First Peter, Peter, when he writes this letter, is not writing it to try to provide people with a bumper sticker. For for apologetics. He's writing to people who are on the verge of being persecuted for their faith. And he starts out by telling them in this text that your first defense against all of the, the attacks that you, you think are coming, you feel like are coming, is be holy, which I find is, is just fascinating. Be holy. That's First Peter chapter 1. Be holy. In other words, that's why I said in that through our words and through our lives in the definition that one of the defenses is a holy life. It doesn't end there, but it does at least start there. And this is something he says, defend your faith by living a life of holiness. But then he also goes on to say, be ready to defend it in ways that are logical, that are reasonable, and to defend the hope that is in you, the hope that you have in Christ, which is always for Peter tied somehow to the resurrection of Jesus or our future experience of the resurrection. It's always tied to the future, God raising us at the end of time, or to the past, to the resurrection of Jesus. It's tied to that, but he makes it clear you should expect persecution. You should expect to have to make a defense when your faith is attacked. Live a holy life and be ready to defend the truth of God as he expressed it through Jesus Christ and particularly through his resurrection. So I've known you a little over four years now, in case you've lost count. Shortly after I met you, you began this transition in your life and your interests and your teaching and you have since then been traveling to churches, conferences, speaking engagements kind of all over the country to speak of apologetics in churches for Christians and whatnot. And so I guess the question is, why is, is that where you've been putting your time and effort over these last few years? What, in your mind, what, is, what will look different in a church if people heed your words and take it to heart and begin to care and focus and, and learn apologetics? Well, I, it was when I transitioned into apologetics, it was sort of a transition back because that's where I started out. That was what I started out in terms of my passion, in terms of what I was interested in. So I'd been focused on apologetics. Then I, I transitioned over for a short time to family ministry, um, which I don't view those as diametrically different as people might think, because part of what my passion is in family ministry is for us to be able to train up our children in a way that they retain their faith, they hold on to their faith. I've had the opportunity over the past few years then to transition more back into focusing on apologetics, but really my interest in apologetics goes all the way back to the library of a college when I was 17 and 18 years old. That's where 
my my interest in my love for apologetics goes back to. And so what happened in that is I was raised in churches that the types of proofs I was given, the type of evidence I was given that the Christian faith is true were that the King James Version had been translated from a manuscript of the Bible that was perfectly preserved with absolutely no variations in it and things like that. We know that the earth is only a few thousand years old because of there's footprints of humans and dinosaurs beside each other in the Paluxy Riverbed in Texas. And we know that the scriptures are true in every detail because there was a time at which the NASA scientists had to redo their calculations because they found a day missing. And that day is the one in Joshua that talks about those are the types of reasons I was given for my faith. Now, everything I just said to you is actually false. There is no mystical textus receptus that is never with no copying variations. There are no human and dinosaur footprints side by side in the Paluxy Riverbed. There is no missing day in Joshua. Those were some of the strongest evidences. And there were others that were similar to those in that I was raised with those. I went to college without any thought that those things weren't true. And I got to college and started studying Greek and started studying history, taking Old Testament, New Testament classes. These professors were believers, but they were saying things that that challenged everything I had assumed in that. And at the same time, I was in a, I was a, working in a library, working my way through college. And one of the three part-time jobs I had at that time was as a librarian. And so I, I was working in a library and I remember the moment when I was shelving books because that was one of my jobs is in the evening shelving books. And I shelved the book. Bertrand Russell's Why I Am Not a Christian. And at that same moment, that shelving of that book intersected with a deep frustration that I had learned that some of those things I just told you were false. I'd been told those things, I believed those things, and they were false. And I put it on the shelf, and then I pulled it back off the shelf, and I read it. And then I started reading everything in that section, everything on atheism I could read. And To me, at that time, all of these atheistic claims seemed so much more believable than anything I had been told at that point. I started reading a bunch of conspiracy theory stuff like the Passover plot, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, that I know now are ridiculous, but I didn't know that then. They seemed really, really believable then. And a few months into that, I was right at the edge of losing faith completely. I just felt like it it had all fallen apart. All the evidences I had been given had completely fallen apart under the weight of actual evidence. And I really ended up at a crisis of faith at that point and just really broken. And uh, this was several months of this. And I ended up then running across a book by C.S. Lewis. The book was Surprised by Joy. For most people, it's mere Christianity. It wasn't for me. It was Surprised by Joy, which was C.S. Lewis telling his story of moving from atheism to Christian faith which was fortuitous that I read that because I was looking at the opposite trajectory and feeling and drawn toward that opposite trajectory. C.S. Lewis had taken it, and I realized a lot of the things I was wrestling with, there were other answers than the ones that I was finding in the books on atheism. There were other answers. And it's interesting, the reason I actually pulled C.S. Lewis off the shelf to begin with is actually because his book, Magician's Nephew, had been forbidden in a particular Christian school that I had gone to, a fundamentalist Christian school when I was in the first part of high school. They had forbidden his book, Magician's Nephew. So I'm like, this guy must write some amazing stuff if they forbid one of his books. They'd banned one of his books. And so I actually, that was what I first, I didn't know he was an 
apologist. I knew he'd written the Chronicles of Narnia, and I knew one of the Chronicles of Narnia got banned in this Christian school. And so I, I pulled this off the shelf and started reading it, and it it started to rock my world completely in that just because I started to see there are other answers to the dilemmas that lead you to atheism, other answers than the ones I was getting. I read that. Then I ran across around the same time F.F. Bruce and his book, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable? And I started reading everything I could by C.S. Lewis and F.F. Bruce, literally simply going through and finding every book in the library by them and reading every single book, all the way down to F.F. Bruce's commentary on Acts, reading his commentary on Acts, reading that and absolutely consuming all of that. And it was kind of like when you go out for a walk in the morning and it's dark and then you've been walking for a while and the sun kind of comes up. And and for me, that was the way it was spiritually. I'd, been, I'd gone for a walk in the dark and suddenly the sun started to come up. And I came on the other end of that with a new commitment, a different type of commitment to the Christian faith. But I also came to a commitment, and that's what brings me to apologetics, is I don't want anybody else to have to go through what I went through. I want people to have real answers. And and I was frustrated with the fact that now I realize there were real answers and nobody told me the good ones. And part of the reason nobody told me the good ones is because nobody raised the real issues, the real problems. And so going back to that second part of your, your initial question there, what would change in a church when we actually deal with and engage with apologetics? And I think the number one thing that's going to change is we're actually going to raise the real questions. We don't act like that every question is easily answered. There's really complex, difficult, and painful questions that people really face in their real lives. And we actually raise those questions. We talk about those questions, but we also demonstrate to people that there are answers to the questions. And we don't give easy answers, cheap answers. We give real answers and real answers that sometimes aren't tidy and neat, but are sometimes a little bit messy and a little bit where we have to say sometimes, I don't know the full answer to what you've you've raised, that question you've raised, but let's look for the truth together and, and let's allow for that we may not be able to figure everything out in every instance, that type of honesty. That's what I wanted. That's what I needed. That's what I deeply desired during that time. And that's what I found in C.S. Lewis, F.F. Bruce, some others later, but those were the two initial ones. And I want us to develop church cultures that raise the real questions and give good answers to people and are willing to be spaces where people can have doubts and that we aren't shocked by their doubts or angered by their doubts, but rather we welcome their doubts and recognize that there are real answers to those doubts. Though I don't know exactly what they mean, there are those out there that would make the argument that anything other than focusing on the gospel, and, and maybe they're speaking of uh, of evangelism, maybe they're speaking of just the preaching of the gospel, but anything other than, any other focus other than the gospel uh, is a distraction to the gospel. A question I have is, is, can a church or a Christian emphasize, focus on apologetics so much that it becomes a distraction to the gospel? I think only if you focus on it in the wrong way, because if we are truly focusing on apologetics, in a right 
and godly and good and healthy way, it will exalt the centrality of the gospel rather than detract from it. Now, if we get to a point where our apologetics is all about proving a particular view of creation as the right view of creation or or whatever it may be or a certain or it becomes all about the logic, about making logical arguments, yeah, we can distract be distracted from the gospel by that. But if we recognize that the gospel is central to apologetics, then really a focus on apologetics is going to lead us directly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why I think it's important that the resurrection of Jesus has to be central to our apologetic. And I would argue that it is, particularly in First Peter, that the resurrection of Jesus is central to the apologetic, particularly in that description, First Peter chapter 3, is that we focus on the resurrection of Jesus because that is integral to, central to the gospel. So by, by gravitating toward the resurrection of Jesus, we gravitate naturally toward the gospel of Jesus Christ. And until we have proclaimed the gospel, our apologetic is incomplete. And that's why I really encourage people to think in terms of, when they think of apologetics, view all those other topics in apologetics, whether it be the way in which the world was created, the necessity of a creator, whether it be the problem of evil, whatever those things may be, use those as springboards to get to the death and resurrection of Jesus, because you can convince somebody that whatever your view of creation is, that that is, if you can convince them, that is the correct view, and yet leave that person unconfronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can convince them that the problem of evil is not a logical problem after all. In other words, you can solve that logical dilemma, supposed logical dilemma of the problem of evil and still never confront somebody with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if we put in front of people the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we cannot leave that without somehow moving toward the gospel. And so the only way that it becomes a distraction from the gospel is if we do it wrong. I like to think of apologetics as the way one person I've heard uh, says it, is apologetics is whatever you do when you share the gospel and somebody says no. That is your apologetic. Whatever you do when they say no to the gospel, that's your apologetic. And that keeps it, again, centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. So apologetics only becomes a distraction from the gospel if we're doing it poorly or doing it wrong. So all of these serious questions, they're all right and good, but no episode of Three Chords and the Truth podcast would be complete without the Infinity Gauntlet. The Infinity Gauntlet, yes. Timothy, can you explain to our listeners what the Infinity Gauntlet is? Well, first, in case there is any person out there who has not yet seen the Avengers Infinity War. For shame. This is a spoiler alert right here. You're going to find out something that happens in that movie. But of course, would you be the type of person who listens to this podcast if you haven't already seen Infinity War? Doubtful. Uh, And it is very doubtful. So in the Infinity War, the Infinity Gauntlet is a glove in which the Infinity Stones or the Infinity Gems are placed. And Thanos, by snapping Tapping his finger a single time is able to eliminate half of the population of humanity at that point on Earth, on Earth only. Let us emphasize at that point on Earth only that it eliminates half of humanity. And as far as we know, only on Earth. 
Well, we have the Infinity Gauntlet here. It is part of our, our program. We can't tell you how we got it because it was a great ordeal for us to be able to obtain the Infinity Gauntlet. We have to be very careful when we pull questions out of it that we do not put our hands in it wrong or snap or lest half of you would die if that happened. So we have to be careful. And or so, half of us. Or half of us, which means one of the other of us goes in sort of a rapture gone backwards and wrong and fades away into dust uh, at this point. So we will pull out each week a question from the Infinity Gauntlet and ask that question. It is a pressing question that we have. It's the type of question that keeps you up at night for hours. These type of questions that we are asking as part of the program when we pull them out of the Infinity Gauntlet. The kind of question that divides families, if you would, and separates friends and people break fellowship over. Today's question, though, there's no way that you and I are going to disagree on this. In fact, I would love to hear from listeners that would disagree with us on this. I just think there is only one right answer to this week's question from the Infinity Gauntlet, and that is, which one is better and why, DC or Marvel? Uh, I have to give a little bit of a double answer on this because DC is far superior comic books. This is a fair point. There is no question on that. Marvel is better movies. But if we're talking about comic books, like there's not even a question that Batman by himself is better than anything that the Marvel Universe has produced. And it's not just because it's a ba- it's Batman. It's because of Batman's enemies is what makes him amazing in that. So comic books, DC, without a doubt. Yeah, and, and movies, it's just not a contest. It's just, it's just, there's no, arg- I, I can't imagine an argument to be made for the uh, superiority of DC to Marvel in, in the, the movies. Unless you only look at the Dark Knight trilogy, but you can't look just at that. There are so many other movies that are so bad from DC in that it might, the Dark Knight trilogy was, was a monumental achievement. It still though doesn't quite measure up the degree to which the Marvel Cinematic Universe strung together in such a coherent way. There's television programs, there's cartoons, there are there are all the movies in such a way that produces this vast and amazing meta-narrative. It really is a meta-narrative that they are pulling together. It's pretty amazing. And when they feel that they get it wrong, they simply redo it. Oh, we don't like this particular incredible Hulk movie. So we'll do it again. This Spider-Man trilogy, which will not be named, doesn't quite do it. And so let's reboot it and and try it again. And so... So there you go. There you have it. If anybody disagrees, first off, you're wrong. But if anybody disagrees, they can. you can send us your information and your argument, and we will on air then articulate for everybody why you're still wrong at that point. And so, but you can do your best, give your best shot, and then we will articulate on air why you're still wrong and we are still right. So bring it. Garrick and I may disagree a lot, but both of us agree about the golden age of rock. It began with the summer of love, and it ended with grunge. And so each week on this portion of the podcast, we review a song from the golden age of American rock and roll from a theological point of view. 
When we mention classic apologetics on this program, what we're talking about is finding truth in classic rock. I'm Garrett from the 80s. And I am Timothy from the 1970s. Timothy, we want to talk today, or we want to begin by talking about humanity's greatest inventions in history. Do you have any ideas, any things that come, that rise to the top? Chocolate-covered graham crackers. I'm pretty sure that's that's way up there at the top. I mean, somebody at some point thought, let's take this and cover it in chocolate. And so that's a pretty great one. I uh, agree. I right there. I've always said that uh, I think one of God's greatest inventions was cruise control. I know people talk about sliced bread. I don't see the advantage of sliced bread. I can use a knife, but not having to hold down the gas pedal for hours upon hours, uh, I think that's a real win for humanity. What else would there be? I'm trying to think of uh, amazing... It's all food. I keep thinking of food. I don't know why. That's what I keep thinking. For me, Nintendo was a pretty great invention, especially I'm thinking the classic, the original Tecmo Bowl, which I could play for hours upon hours. In fact, recently got a hold of it again and am trying to introduce my son who could care less about American football, trying to introduce him to Tecmo Bowl and and foster this love that I have for it. So Electric guitars. That's one that is a non-food item that I would say is humanity's one of, if not the greatest invention. I could talk for hours about the history of that, but we won't on this particular program, but uh, the electric guitar. That's Yeah, yeah, I would agree there. So obviously we both believe that rock and roll would be one of uh, humanity's greatest inventions. But the question that I'm sure is on everyone's mind is, who actually invented rock and roll? Well, the thing is, with rock and roll, it doesn't come with one particular person. There wasn't somebody sat down and invented rock and roll all of a sudden, but you have to have some certain social structures that are in place for it. You don't have rock and roll without a distinct youth culture, and that's a a pure culture. That is to say that youth started being gathered together, teenagers, into schools, being gathered together into schools. They're actually together and are interacting with one another, and that provides sort of a context for a peer-driven culture. You've also got a, a the beginning of this displacement of radio by television and then the invention of the transistor, actually the widespread availability of the transistor radio. So you may still have a central point of entertainment in the living room, that would be the TV now, but then youth, students, teenagers can have a radio in their room. So there's the capacity for them to actually listen to something different than the family as a whole. And you've got independent stations, radio stations that begin playing what was actually then called race music, which is musical forms that grow out of rhythm and blues, which ultimately, of course, grew out of the black church and that. And so then in the South, you've got white audiences that typically aren't ready to listen to race music, what they call race music. And so we start having this kind of development in which rhythm and blues gets mixed with hillbilly music or what we, the predecessor of country music, to form what is called rockabilly, which was a sort of one that was just acceptable enough to white audiences for them to listen to in certain contexts. So this is some of the social structures that are in place that have to be in place for rock and roll even to emerge. This is actually disputed and debated among different people. I'm going to say it's 1947. There was a jump blues singer. This was a real energetic form of blues, was jump blues. And his name was Roy Brown. And he and he wrote and recorded this song in 1947 called Good Rocking Tonight. And so that rocking is used as a description of the music itself in this particular song. Elvis then later records this song, and it's a hit in 1954. Not a, not a hit in 1947, but it is in 1954. 
At the same time, there is a anti-establishment streak that is emerging at this time, a pushback against societal norms, a longing for spiritual experiences outside of established religion. So you have Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg who are urging people to pursue spiritual experiences through drugs. And this is where we begin to see talk about the beat generation. Yeah, and you see in this, it's easy for us to point out what some people call the pelvic revolt against uh, against all the norms. And that was certainly there. I'm not going to deny that that was there. Certainly was. But at the same time, even though there was that, there was a spiritual longing that was going on as well. Um, when they start speaking about the beat generation, early on, they're actually, some of them referring to this in terms of beatitude. That is to say, what they perceive as being this attitude of, of peace and seeking spiritual things, everything like that. Jack Kerouac he said, I am beat because I believe in beatitude and that God so loved the world. And then he quotes John 3.16. In other words, as, as messed up as that is and mingling all these different things together, it's clear that there is a spiritual longing. And, and let's remember that the faith that many young people were seeing had little emphasis on justice. It really lacked a, a prophetic voice, we might say. That's part of what Carl F. H. Henry critiques in his book, The Uneasy Conscience of, of Modern Fundamentalism. It's really important for us to, to recognize that the church in some ways had lost a prophetic voice. Uh, there were so many issues to do with race and all these things like that that really weren't being addressed. So then amid two world wars, economic depression, you've got fundamentalism in particular really turns all of its hope toward a future redemption. And Carl F. H. Henry, after World War II, begins calling for a different approach, that he's, he's basically pointing out that we have to speak to the social culture of our day. We have to speak to the social ills of our day and he says in that book something to this effect that the evangelical missionary message cannot be measured for success merely by the number of converts. The Christian message also has a salting effect upon the earth. It aims at a recreated society. That's what Carl F. H. Henry is, is saying at this point. So let's, let's let that frame what we're thinking and recognize that a lot of young people were seeing churches that were not really concerned with the social ills of the day that they were living in. And in many cases, American culture, church culture got so assimilated that to be pro-God was to be pro-America and not to be able to prophetically critique. And so we've got this spiritual longing uh, that's going on as along with this. A reaction to the church seemingly losing its saltiness. If, exactly. If you would. Yeah. There's also a righteous surge of anti-authoritarianism. So you have African-Americans who fought in World War. They returned home to find out, hey, I still can't vote, and I still can't use the same facilities as my fellow white citizens. Right. And, and of course, it was legal for them to vote, but practically it was not possible in many instances, particularly in the South, for them to do so due to all sorts of strictures that were set up to prevent African-Americans from having an authentic voice. And I really, I mean, I love the way Propaganda, the hip-hop artist, one of my favorite hip-hop artists, he puts it. He says, and the Marine Corps landed them poor black men out in Berlin, and they couldn't help but notice the striking resemblance between these Jewish 
Jewish ghettos and the one in their own Chicago. How a man's supposed to gun tote for a country that don't let him vote? And, and, and it's expressing that frustration that the World War II veterans felt as they came home that were African-American to say, look, we fought for freedom there. We don't have freedom here. And this really in 1955 really crosses a threshold with the murder of Emmett Till. By the end of, of, World, of, uh, of 1955, Martin Luther King Jr. is leading the Montgomery bus boycotts. And this righteous anti-authoritarianism, it sort of contributes to a general anti-authoritarianism. And so you've got by, particularly by 1968, that the news media turns rapidly against the Vietnam War. There's a rapid leftward lurch in politics and a rise in anti-war sentiments. And, and we can look at those for the, the mixed kind of thing that they really were, but let's recognize that a lot of it started with a righteous anti-authoritarianism that had good reason for being expressed that was to do with racism that people saw and the hypocrisy of society. Yeah, yeah. So how does all of this connect with the hippie movement that we are getting into today? Well, one of the fascinating things is that the hippie movement really comes and goes more quickly than most people think. The high point, I think, of the hippie movement looking at it is the Monterey Pop Music Festival, which was the first major rock music festival. It was inspired in part by the Monterey Jazz Festival that had been going on for some time. And there's around 200,000 people show up for the Monterey Pop Festival. It ends on June 18th of uh, 1967. And it's kind of funny because the Who and Jimi Hendrix were both scheduled to play, and uh, neither one wanted to follow the other one. Actually, there was a, a set from The Grateful Dead that was in between those two, but neither one wanted to play, so they flipped a coin, and so the in this coin toss, Hendrix loses the coin toss, and so he has to play last, so The Who plays first, and so Pete Townsend smashes a guitar on stage. It's funny, if you watch the video of it, you can see all these people rushing to the stage to save the microphones, because he's smashing his guitar all over the stage, and so Hendrix then comes up. So what does Hendrix do? Hendrix doesn't just smash his guitar. He burns his guitar. And it's the most iconic image of all of rock and roll history. Hendrix on his knees with his guitar burning, looking as if he is conjuring flames up out of the guitar. And so Hendrix burns his guitar. But this kind of what comes out of this is the Summer of Love in 1967, which is about 80,000 people, young people, end up living in the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. And so they're just hanging out for a summer of free love, LSD, communal living. But some problems really become clear really quickly. Shocker. Exactly. So, I mean, you, you, you turn on, you tune in, you drop out, and it quickly runs into financial issues. Eventually, people have to eat, things like that. And this whole idea of communal living and everything like that, it sounded wonderful, but actually doing it was almost impossible at a practical level. So homelessness, hunger began to set in. And by October of that year, in San Francisco, people actually hold a funeral for the hippie movement. And so so then if we go to a little bit further into the fall at that point, the dream, as we see, lives on because the musical Hair debuts off-Broadway. And uh, one of the songs in that is The Age of Aquarius, where this deep desire for justice, for peace. So we watched the video of it a little bit before we got on air. And so it's, it's pretty interesting just to watch that from the fifth dimension. Yeah, a, a line from that song uh, goes like this. When the moon is in the seventh house and Jupiter aligns with Mars... Then peace will guide the planets, and love will steer the stars. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Harmony and understanding, 
sympathy and trust abounding, no more falsehoods or derisions, golden living dreams of visions, mystic crystal revelation, and the mind's true liberation. So this was recorded by The Fifth Dimension, number one song for six weeks on the Billboard charts in 1967. And what we see in this is this longing for peace, these things that are very biblical ideas, peace, justice, love, but all without any reference to God in any way, shape, or form in this. So it's this desire to go back to Eden, I almost would say, um, this desire to try to get to a state of innocence at this point. And you see this spiritual longing, but also no real means to get there. It's all human effort. It's all human trying to get there on the basis of, of ourselves. So this song is in some sense an eschatology. And when we talk about eschatology, we're talking about, I'll let you, you're the theologian. Well, yeah, we've, we've mentioned it a couple times, and so it'd be good to kind of explain it for those uh, who don't read a bunch of nerdy theology books like we do. And so the word means literally that it's a word about or the study of the end times, the the last things, when when we think that the world as we know it kind of comes to an end or, or transitions into something new, depending on your view of eschatology. One of the favorite ways I've seen it put is that in eschatology, we are thinking about God's happily ever after, the solution, the consummation of the in the beginning or the once upon a time that comes in the book of Genesis in the Garden of Eden. And what we have here is really a secular apocalypse, a secular attempt to be able to bring about a beautiful and good end, uh, we might say a millennial end, but in a way that, that does not need God, which has been humanity's desire ever since in the beginning, when humanity fell into sin, we see it at the Tower of Babel. Let's build something that can reach up to God. We see that all the way through history, and that's what we see in the age of Aquarius and in much of the hippie movement is we see this inclination, this desire to do this, a real and authentic spiritual longing, but a desire to fulfill that longing through human effort. So now's the time in our show where we share some resources, some helpful things to to read, to go find, to think about. Now, Timothy, I'm not going to embarrass you and share the insane number of apologetics books that you've read just in the last year, two years, because it's silly, and and I don't want to do that to you. But of all that reading... What are the ones that you have found are, are really worthy, helpful to, to pass along to folks? Well, one of them would be uh, Christopher Brooks, his book, Urban Apologetics. Now, I serve as a pastor in an urban context, and there are very few resources that help us understand how to do apologetics effectively in an urban church, in an urban context, a multicultural, multi-ethnic context. And Chris Brooks, his book, it's a really excellent book from Kriegel, 
Urban Apologetics. I would say that one. The other one, and it's one that I'm thinking about making my core text for teaching apologetics, at least until I finish my own apologetics textbook, because I've really been impressed with it, is Apologetics at the Cross by Mark Allen and Josh Chatrow. It's from Zondervan. It's a really good book. It What I like that they do it is that it contrasts an apologetics of the cross that is characterized by humble testimony, it contrasts that against an apologetics of glory that seeks to triumph over your opponent. And that's woven all the way through the book. And it's just excellent because one of the things that gets on my nerves, but I also think is very harmful, is arrogant apologetics. Arrogance and apologetics should be a contradiction in terms. There should never be an arrogant apologetic. And I see so many apologists, both on stage and off stage, so to speak, who there's an arrogance about what they do, and that that disturbs me. And this book really kind of sidesteps that and really seeks a humble apologetic. Thank you for joining us today. If you want to learn more about the two of us, take a look at 3chordsapologetics.com. That's chords with an H, the kind you play on the guitar. While you're at 3chordsapologetics.com, be sure to subscribe to this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about defending the truth of God's Word, take a look at my book, How We Got the Bible. My name is Timothy Paul Jones, my co-host is Garrick Bailey, and we are already looking forward to joining you next time on 3 Chords and the Truth, the Apologetics Podcast. If you want to dig deeper into apologetics, one great place to start is the book Reasons for Our Hope by Wayne House and Dennis Jowers. The book is Reasons for Our Hope, and you can go to bhacademic.com today to download a free sample chapter.